Morning, everybody. Morning, morning. I just had my welcome to that of Andres, especially if you are visiting today, you're a guest. Very, very welcome to you. My name is Andis. I'm one of the teaching elders here at Grace Church. Please do keep that psalm open. Uh, that was so, so very well read. And indeed, we'll need uh, an encouragement. And it was, I was so glad that we could sing the song of My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than, than on Jesus. Especially when we are uh, approaching this uh, somewhat even more sobering psalm than the than one that we had last Sunday. So, help us God to see the, his, his grace in it too. But let me kick off with um, uh, an observation. Humans are essentially good. If there is a God, he should welcome me in his eternal dwellings. Now, what do you make of this statement? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Are you not sure? Now, I was recently chatting with one of my long-time non-Christian friends about the nature of a man. He is a director of a Montessori school just across the river. And he would naturally believe that men are essentially good. But then his confession surprised me. He said, I sincerely believe that education would change these kids for better. But it didn't. They still remain so evil. Of course, I said to him, well, uh, the head teacher of my children says nothing of a kind about my kids. They are very good. I didn't say that to him, of course, because I don't believe that for a second. But that was a pretty fundamental observation from, from someone who wouldn't call himself a Christian. I hope that education will sort these kids out for better, but it couldn't. But is it fundamental enough? Now, if you would ask my friend whether God, if there is one, should still welcome such people in heaven, he would say, absolutely, by all means, by all means he should. Now, what would you say? Are humans essentially good? What evidence is there to support that claim if you think that way? A quick look at the news headlines this week would destroy our optimism. Just think about globally, Russian invasion and Ukraine war still going on, a man essentially good. Locally, locally, a drunk driver in Yelgala crushed his Volkswagen into the standing Scania truck. The passenger died. Man essentially good. And on a more personal level, reportedly the new WhatsApp update will allow you to leave the, the, the WhatsApp group silently. A man essentially good? Well, it might not be a pinnacle of man's total inner depravity, but it bears, bears some marks of it. You know, I'm going to cancel you guys quietly. I'm going to cancel you quietly. Now, our psalm today is very honest about the nature of man. In the middle bulk of it, we discover in the Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner, Kidner's words, 
a shadow cast by human self-will in its long struggle against light. And sadly, it's just not any, any people. Psalm 106 talks about the people of God and their record of sin and failure to honor God and it's unmatched. But is it really unmatched? Just take a look at verse 6 in our psalm. Verse 6 puts us two in a long line of people who have to confess our sin against God. Verse 6, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. So what we'll see in the middle, middle of the, the big bulk of the psalm is going to be sobering again. But this psalm also surprises us immensely. Because alongside the human's long struggle against light, there emerges this, the, the real theme of the psalm, namely the extraordinary long-suffering of, of God. The aim of the psalmist, I suppose, is praise. Praise God for his long-suffering with people's long struggle against light. So despite what's in the middle, verse 1 and verse 48, the bookends of the psalm, prompts us praise the Lord. Now the difficult bit though is to work out how to get from verse 2. Just go on, say it. How to get from verse 2. Who can, who can utter God's praise? Am I worthy to utter God's praise? How to get from verse 2 to verse 48. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. How do you get from 2 to 48, considering everything that is in the middle? So that's, that's our task today, to work out how to get from the uncertainty to confidence in God's grace. But first, the, the sobering bit from verse 6 to 39, human self-will and its long struggle against light. Now, guys, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised by what we discover in this middle bit. Here is God's assessment of humans, um, even as he restarts the world with his favorite Noah. Back in the days in Genesis, here's the quote, God's observation, fundamental. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So Genesis 8. Now, Psalm 106, verse 6 to 39, is a perfect illustration of that truth. And verse 6 again summarizes that. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. And the following 34 verses then contain a story of sin and failure of God's people, starting from Exodus to the Babylonian exile. It is firstly, let me take you through that list, okay? It's firstly a record of unbelief from verses 7 to 12. So as Israel was about to cross the Red Sea, after God has saved them from the Egyptians, they show a staggering unbelief. In Exodus 14, we read, in their fear of the Egyptian army, they forgot, they forgot 
God's awesome deliverance through the ten plagues in Egypt. Listen to their words. Are there no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And the second one. For it would, be, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Staggering unbelief. But are we not sometimes thinking down the same line too? Ah, this Christian life is so difficult. It is like a desert. The serving the Lord thing doesn't seem to be much fun. But drinking parties with mates was much better. Well, I hope it's not us. But you can see how easy and how quickly the unbelief can squeeze in and make us discontent. Which is the record of verses 13 to 15. We move from unbelief to discontent. Indeed, Israel could not pass the test of faith. Instead, instead they tested the Lord by their cravings of the Egyptian uh, goodies. This is Numbers 14, uh, that quote. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, the cost uh, the, that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. It sounds awful lot like my children in the morning. What's for breakfast, mummy? What? Oatmeal again? I want fried eggs with bacon and beans. That's how our morning in, in, in our house goes on very often. But if we're honest, if we're honest, the discontent creeps in our lives too. Way too quickly. And when right, the unbelief bears the fruit of discontentment. This strong and articulate conviction that my Christian life is pale and I'm not okay with my Christian life. And what happens when unbelief bears the, the fruit of discontentment? We start to compare ourselves to others. How others are doing, how, what others have, what, you know, what sort of things or friendships or obstacles they have. And you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. And so jealousy lurks around the corner. And jealousy is what we find in verses 16 to 18 with the people of Israel. That is what Korah and his company did. They became jealous of Moses and Aaron. In number 16, that there's the record of the jealousy. Hear what uh, Korah and his company says. You have gone too far, Moses, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself amongst the assembly of the Lord? I mean, we have to confess jealousy is blind. The jealousy is blind to the privileges that we already have in the Lord. It makes us blind. 
And just consider for a second, the Levites were already chosen and set apart for the service in the tabernacle. What a high honor. But they wanted more. Ah, they, want, they crave more of a status, more of a recognition, more of an influence, more of a power. More money, maybe, some goods. And we see how easily jealousy leads to idolatry. I mean, Paul in 1 Timothy was onto something when he um, gave this warning to the, the church in Ephesus through his sermon Timothy for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through his, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So from jealousy very quickly to idolatry. That is what we see in the history of God's people in verses 19 onwards. Now Israel's idolatry with the golden calf seems to be out of chronological order here, if you, if you follow through. And I don't quite understand why, actually. But the sobering point is the same. Israel exchanged the glory of God for that, for that of the grass-eating uh, animal. In other words, they didn't act like the people of God. They acted like pagans. And I think that is exactly what Paul hints at in Romans 1. Everybody, not just the people of God, have a general knowledge about God. Everyone, every single person on this earth knows, can know God. In a way. Why? Because his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature are revealed in his creation for everyone to see. God can be known as God, but men suppress this truth. And no wonder God's promises can seem like an empty words at some point. And drawing back then follows, which is exactly what happens with people in Israel. Their idolatry at the, at the Mount of Sinai makes them draw back eventually from verse 24 through to verse 27. Now these verses pick up on a very tragic, tragic turning point in God's relationships with his people. In Numbers 14... Israel is at the threshold of the promised land. Just a few more steps, and they're in. And the spies, what the spies that were sent to check out the land, they came back and they eventually discouraged people from entering it. They said, Oh, the huge people living in there, it's scary, they're gonna kill us, it's not gonna go well with us, and so they discouraged people to hang to the promise of God. As a result, people decided to get a new leader who will get them back to Egypt, drawing back. And I think we're meant to feel God's pain at this stage. Just remember what he has done. He has delivered his people from Egypt through the wilderness. And he has delivered his people to the doorsteps of the promised land where milk and honey is flowing. 
They just had to trust God for this one final, one final step. Promise that God made long ago to Abraham. I will give you the land. I will give you. Trust me. But they didn't. And so they died as they said they would in the wilderness. Now, author of Hebrews warns Christians lest we make the same mistake. He actually takes us back to the beginning of our list, starting with the problem of unbelief. And he says the gospel didn't benefit the listeners because of unbelief. Let us keep, let's, uh, let us keep trusting the Lord. Why? Because there is no such thing as standing still. Either we move forward or we're gonna, we've been sliding, sliding back. There's no such thing as status quo. We're good. We're standing still. Either we go forward or we slide back. And this is what happens to Israel next. They slide back. It is apostasy from verse 28. That's a truly gross episode in Israel's history. Numbers 25 picks up on that. And he calls it what it is. Listen to Numbers 25 verse 1. The people of Israel began to haul with the daughters of Moab. The result was changed allegiance. They bowed down to their gods and ate sacrifices offered to the dead gods that are no gods at all. Now when Paul speaks to the Corinthian church about not being equal, unequally yoked with unbelievers, I think he, he has something similar along, you know, on his mind. And he wants, he wants the Corinthians' affections for the gospel renewed. He wants to see their hearts being wide open to the surround, uh, what, what, not, not to be open, wide open to the surrounding culture, but to Paul. And ultimately to the Heavenly Father who saved them. But friends, I, I, just, I just think it's, it's good. It's good to notice this reoccurring theme in the Old Testament. And just keep in mind we, what we see very often in the Old Testament. That joining oneself sexually with someone is, is linked to one's object of worship. So the, the children of Israel... Link joined themselves sexually with the daughters of Moab, and that lead to worship the gods of Moab, apostasy. It's a very serious note. Anyways, there are two more sobering instances of Israel's sin reflected in Upsal. So, final two, before we hopefully move on to something more, more pleasant. It's provocation and paganization. Provocation in verse 32 and verse 30, 33. Now, by this time, you can understand how fed up with people of Israel Moses was. Now, I am sure that, that this thought crossed his mind that ministry would be much easier and much more pleasant if there were no people at all. 
and then he stumbled and it cost him dearly. Now Absalom looks back at how Israel provoked Moses and Aaron to give them water and Moses' response to that was ungodly, sadly. Hear his word. Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Not can God do that, but shall we? And so Moses stumbled, and Moses got punished because of that. He didn't enter, he didn't guide his, you know, the people of Israel into the promised land. But the people of God didn't get off the hook either. And, and finally, finally, guys, from verse 34, paganization. The long record of Israel's sin and failure amounts to them losing their identity of God's people. They failure to pour out the blood of the Canaanites resulted in pouring out the blood of their sons and daughters as they sacrificed them to the pagan gods. Now, time doesn't allow me to engage in the ethical debate about the destruction of the Canaanites. Maybe some other time. But we should be very fearful to think that we can judge God by human standards. Now, we see that it never ended well for Israel. As a result, God again and again judge his rebellious people. We see by way of plagues, natural disasters, catastrophic events, and by the sword of the foreign nations. His judgment extended to the point when the whole generation that left Egypt perished in the desert, as verse 26 says. Yet, yet how gracious God is all the time. Now, if you read, if you listened to Psalm as, as Andres read it, again and again, there are these instances of God saving them, delivering them, despite anything, despite their sin and rebellion, despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, God saves them. Now, I believe that our heads are already spinning from the downward spiral of Israel's sin. And I think verses 40 to 46 reflect on that downward spiral of the dark days recorded in the book of Judges. Yes, God judged the rebellion and the apostasy of His people. But notice how tempered His judgment is. Just glance at verse 43 through to verses 45. Let's read it. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes. And were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. How good is the Lord! His steadfast love endures forever. And that brings us finally to the slightly awkward bookends of this psalm. Remember? Now how do we get from the uncertainty about the, our salvation in, in verse 2? Who can utter 
the mighty deeds of the Lord. Who is worthy to declare His praise? Who is? To verse 48. Let all the people of God say Amen. Praise the Lord. How? And the answer lies, and the answer is, is there in these bookends. A salvation provided by the long-suffering God who is good. But just notice the uncertainty in the beginning. Verse 1, praise the God. Verse 2, but who can do that? Verse 3, blessed are righteous. Blessed are those who are just. Verse 4, am I one of them? Remember me, remember me, Lord. Because I and my people in Babylon have sinned just like our fathers did. Remember me. Now, are we not so often feeling the same? Father God, I know that you are a good God. But you are also a just God. And I am not. Is it not sometimes that we feel very similar the psalmist by saying I bet others in a church are much more upright but others in a church are much more devoted, much more godly much more generous much more tempered than I am is it not sometimes that we feel very similar along the lines of I know your steadfast love endures forever I know it, it, it it's, it's written But you are also a God of judgment. You judge the Old Testament people. They die because of their sin. So which one is it going to be for me? Am I going to get the God of love? Or am I going to get the God of judgment? Because if if I'm honest, I have this constant fight with unbelief. I have this constant fight with discontent. Some of these mornings, you know, someone mentioned in the beginning, I'm just not happy that I even woke up in the morning. What about jealousy? How others are doing better than I am. Others have better things than I have. And I sometimes I'm afraid where it might take me further if I read about the history of the people of Israel. Who can declare his praise? Am I worthy to declare His praise? Can I actually open my mouth on Sunday to declare His praise, knowing what my week was like? Am I worthy? Now, if you, if you feel anything like the psalmist, or anything like me often, then this psalm has some encouragement for you. The encouragement is found in the truth about how God rescues and has rescued His people so far. There are actually a couple of hints in the psalm about that. Just take a look at verse 23. The Lord was about to destroy his people because of their idolatry. Verse 23. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And the second hint, verse 30. Again, the Lord was about to kill his people with a plague because of their gross apostasy. But Phineas, Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. God 
God had rescued his people through a mediator. The mediator is a middleman. A middleman who stands between sinful human and the righteous judge. Holy God. Now the people in Babylon, toward the end of the psalm, they could be confident that despite their sin, despite the sin of their fathers, the Lord in His steadfast love will save them. Why? They trusted that He will provide the mediator, the middleman. People in the middle of sin are rescued by the man in the middle. Isn't that amazing? And friends, do we not have him already? Just, just ponder on this. We have the perfect middle man in Jesus who stood up and intervened on our behalf before the righteous judge of the universe. He took upon himself all our past, present and future sins and bore in his body on the cross God's righteous judgment for our sin. And all this is so that we may be spared on the judgment day. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we, including us, see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What are the implications of this truth for us today? There is no more punishment for you if you are in Jesus. If Jesus is your Redeemer, if He has paid the full price for your sins on the cross, there is no more punishment for you when the judgment day comes. Now there is peace between the Holy God and still sinful you, sinful me. There is peace. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus had done. He has broken the power of the vicious cycle of sin in our lives. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him for that. Despite your struggle of faith, despite your daily struggle with discontent or grumbling, whatever, keep trusting. Keep trusting the man in the middle. He has done it all. He has paid the full price for our sins. Praise Him. Praise Him confidently. Now, if you are someone who doesn't know the peace with God through the forgiveness of sins provided by the mediator, if you don't know that, call upon Him. Call upon Him even today. Use the words of verse 47. Take a look at it. Verse 47. Save me, O Lord. Save me. Have mercy on me. It doesn't matter what your ancestors have done, what your dad, your granddad, grand-granddad have done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life, really. 
doesn't matter how great sinner you think you are. The blood of Jesus is powerful to save. John Newton, and I'm going to close with that, used to be a brutal sea wolf running a slave trade ship. But then one stormy night, uh, as he was completely sure of his imminent death, he called. He called upon the name of the Lord. Save me, O Lord. And he was saved both from the shipwreck and from the damning fire of hell. And, and thus he wrote the song, Amazing Grace. So in his old age, looking back at his life, he summarized it. Here's a quote. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that also a fitting summary of, of our psalm today? Our fathers, 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 we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you even for a sobering and honest observation and judgment on the, the nature of um, a man. His thoughts his, are evil from, from uh, his youth. And Father, we confess that we, our fathers, we have sinned. We keep sinning before you in, in so many ways. In our thoughts and words and deeds, in our unbelief and in our discontent and jealousy and uh, so many things, being angry. And Father, we are really, really sorry. And yet we praise you this morning. We praise you that you are a steadfast God because of your grace and your steadfast love that you swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Father, thank you that because of the middleman, you saved the people of God historically. And thank you that because of our perfect middleman, Jesus, you have forgiven our sin. You keep forgiving our sin that we confess. And we can be sure of our ultimate salvation, that we will see you our perfect mediator in the glory. Father, thank you so much. And grant us this confidence as we move in our next week of constant battle and struggling against sin, the world, and the devil, that we have you, our perfect Savior, who saves so imperfect, sinful people like us. Amen.